This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. I'm, uh, we're in a series called the, Isaiah, uh, the Messiah in Isaiah. Uh, that's Jesus, in case you were struggling with that concept. And um, so I'm just going to talk this morning about passion. I'm going to talk this morning about passion, so I hopefully we'll have some passion as I talk. This sermon actually is the second sermon I ever preached in my life, and I haven't touched this passage for a long time. I was probably Andy's age or younger when I preached this. I love this passage. The Word of God is going to do you good this morning. It's going to do you good. Not me going to do you good. The Word of God's going to do you good. So let's, let's do that. So I don't know if you've ever seen this picture before. I don't know what you see. Do you see a beautiful woman? Or do you see an old hag? You can respond at this point. Hands up if you see the old hag. Mostly the blokes, actually. Funny enough. And if you see a beautiful woman. Uh, if you see both, you're obviously far too clever. But it's, it's interesting. Uh, Bono said... Um, I love Jesus, but I don't like his wife. <laughs> I love Jesus, but I don't like his wife. How do you view the church? How do you view this church? How do you view the global church? How do you do it? It's easy to see the church as an old hag. It's easy to see the warts of authoritarianism, the wrinkles of institutionalism, the big nose of bigotry, prying into your private life, the gnarled hands endlessly grasping your money. You know, you can think, oh, the church is this old hag, and I really do not feel much affection for her. And actually, when you talk about church in our society, people don't feel much affection for the church. But the reality is, even if your view has been challenged, even if, if, you've, if you've been in church and never been hurt by church, I'd like to speak to you, because it does, it's people. It, in many ways, there is, there is stuff that's wrong with church. But actually, Jesus' perspective of church is that he loves her. Jesus loves the church. We read it at weddings and we think it's about marriage. Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her. Jesus loves the church. He's passionate about his church. And in this passage in Isaiah 61 and 62, we're going to hear Jesus' passion for the church. And I'd like at the end for you to think, man, I need to be passionate for this great bride of his. Okay, so we're going to... Uh, we're going to read uh, Isaiah 61, verse 10, and then we'll jump into 62. Uh, Isaiah 61, 10 says, this is the voice of the Messiah in, the, uh, in, in Isaiah speaking. I will delight in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God. For he has dressed me with the garments of salvation, and in a robe of righteousness he wraps me. As a groom wears a priestly crown, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth produces its growth, and as a garden springs up with what's sown in it, so the Sovereign Lord will cause righteousness, righteousness and praise to spring up before all nations. For Zion's sake, I will not be quiet. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be still. 
until her righteousness shines like the brightness of the dawn, her salvation like a flaming torch. All nations will see your righteousness and all kings your beauty. You'll be called by a new name that the Lord's mouth will choose for you. You'll be a jeweled crown in the Lord's hand and a royal crown in the grip of our God. No longer will it be said of you forsaken, nor of your land desolate. Instead, you'll be called, my pleasure is in her and your land married. For the Lord's pleasure is in you and your land will be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so the son will marry you. And as a groom delights over his bride, so your God will delight over you, Jerusalem. I have posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourself no rest. And give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of all the earth. Amen. Father, we thank you for these wonderful words about the church. We thank you that you're going to make your church the praise of all the earth. You're going to make the church a royal jeweled crown in your hand. You're going to make the church wonderful. Even though she may be desolate and forgotten, you're going to make her wonderful. Right, that's my sermon. Okay, off you go. Okay, so let's do that. We're going to dig into that and see how Isaiah says that. So Isaiah is writing about 700 BC at a time of national decline. And... Um, and there's a sense of the kind of barrenness or the frustration about Israel. We're not what we're supposed to be. We're not what we're supposed to be. And, and Sophia, who's actually, I think, out in Croatia, whatever now, she, when she's preached, preached a few weeks ago on, on seeing a barren woman, I mentioned earlier in the worship, she, she talked about how Israel feels like this barren woman. Israel has, a, 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 like, been a widow. What, she, what Israel has done has, has, is she's acted unfaithfully to God. She said to God, I'm really not that passionate about you. And she's given herself, Israel has given herself to other gods, to other idols, to the gods of the nations. And so God, as Sophie preached, said that, that God's kind of withdrew for a moment, like a husband who's felt, felt the kind of rejection. Withdrew for a moment. And what happens is when, when God withdraws, from, from, from his people, their protection comes down. And what Israel finds itself suddenly a soft target, the, the Assyrians from Damascus and around there have already come and ravaged the northern kingdom. They've lost battles. And now uh, uh, Isaiah sees Babylon's eye, the, uh, the, the empire of Babylon's eye on the city of Jerusalem. And God gives Isaiah a glimpse into the future. He gives a, a, a glimpse into the future of what would hap- what's going to happen to Israel. And, and actually, the first things it says is not good. The first things he says is Israel is going to be destroyed. It's going to be a ruin. That, that, that Babylon's going to come in and wipe it out. But actually, that's not the last word. And what we find here in this passage is that actually there's a glimpse of what God is going to make Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem stands for the church. If you read your New Testament, 
then that lots and lots of times it talks about the new Jerusalem or, or the city of God. The Ju- Jerusalem in this passage, the role uh, Jerusalem is playing the role of the church. It's playing the role of you and me in community, God's global church. So you need to get that in your head. So I'm not just I'm not making some kind of jump because it fits with my idea. This is a, a biblical idea about how uh, the, the what's what happens to Jerusalem is a sense of what happens to the church. So the first thing we see about Jerusalem is it's desolate and deserted. It says in Isaiah 62 verse 4, No longer will it be said of you forsaken, nor your land desolate, unfruitful. There's this picture of, of Jerusalem that's, that's kind of empty and desolate, a, a ruin. And what happened is Isaiah saw what happened in history. 587 BC, uh, the, the Babylonians came to Jerusalem and they destroyed its gates, its walls were breached, its buildings were destroyed, its temples were looted. And you can feel in Isaiah, if you read Isaiah, because we just snip it in snippets of Isaiah, you can feel the, the shame and the sadness and the disappointment and the emptiness about what's happened to Jerusalem. Because that's not what it's supposed to be. Jerusalem, in, 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 in the kind of Jewish mindset, was to be the city of the great king. If you read your Psalms, the praise of all the earth, the joy of the earth. But yet this city has become a desolate ruin. If you want an eyewitness account of what happened in 587 BC or just after that, you can read Lamentations. Lamentations obviously means sadness. It it, it means a feeling of sadness. And right at the beginning, there's a sadness about this city, the deserted, desolate bride. You can see the language, how they fit imagery of bride and city flow together in this. So here's some verses that are almost like an eyewitness account, poetically. How deserted lies the city. Once so full of people, how like a widow, that's the idea again, she is, who was once great among the nations. Bitterly she weeps at night, tears upon her cheeks. All among her lovers there is none to comfort her. The idols that she's given herself to, they're not there anywhere to be found now. All who pass your way scoff and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? All your enemies open their mouths wide at you. They scoff and gnash their teeth and say, we've swallowed her up. This is the day we've waited for. We've lived to see it. That's the church now. That is the church right now. That's this church, that's a church in this nation. It's almost like it, it, it's, it's kind of one so full of people. How like a widow she now is. Bitterly she weeps at night, but no one comforts her. We scoff and say, look at what's happened. Look at what happened to, to Christianity in this nation. Look what, look what Christians are like now in this nation. We've longed for it. We've, we're delighted. We've swallowed her up. Here's a little, a little pie charts for you. This is just, I tried to do it as a line graph, but I realised two points on a line graph wasn't very exciting. So two pie charts. One is slightly larger than the other because the population in the UK is bigger in 2015 than it was in 1980. In, two, in 1980, 6,484,300 people attended church once a month. Let's not even go into that. Once a month, is that belonging to a community? Let's not go into that. 
That represents 11.8% of the population. About 1 in 10 in 1980 used to go to church. Here we are now. 2015 latest figures, less than half, 3 million. 81,500 go once a month. 5% of the population. A recent survey that I've quoted many times suggested that 70% of the population would not have anything to do with the church no matter how bad their lives were. No matter how much crisis was happening nationally or in their own lives, they wouldn't have anything to do with the church. The Sunday Times some years ago had a headline, The Church Two Decades Away from the End of Christianity. The Guardian, which loves a little bit of liberal arrogance and atheism, wrote this, and this is 10 years ago. Let's have a morality without religion. Society is all grown up and can decide for itself without the help of the church. We don't need the church to tell us what to do. We don't need the church. The church has no value in this society whatsoever. We've grown up. It might have been when we were primitive people. We needed the church and the Bible to tell us what to do, but now we're all mature and enlightened, no, we don't. We have swallowed up. This is the day we've waited for. You can see the, uh, the, between the lines of the Guardian editorial. We've lived to see it. A society, as I said, has got no words of comfort for the church. Bitterly, she weeps at night, tears upon her cheeks. All her lovers have abandoned her. There is none to comfort her. Isaiah writes about what happens when, when, a, when, a, when a nation abandons its God. This is, this is now. It's 27 centuries ago, but this is now. This is Isaiah 59. I'm giving you some backstory. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like, without, like men without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it's twilight. So justice is driven back. And righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is missing. And whoever turns from evil is assailed. If you say good things now, you can be a, you, you, the world, the trolling and the Twitterati can turn on you. You say things that, that, that you know, 50 years, 20 years ago were acceptable. Now you say them and you are suddenly seen as evil. You are assailed as if you were evil. The Lord saw there was no justice and he was offended. The Lord saw that there was no man. He was amazed that there was no one interceding. No, interceding means praying, but it also means standing in the gap and saying, I'm, what's gone wrong with this nation? What's gone wrong with the church? There's nobody. So his own right arm worked salvation. Who's his own right arm? Jesus, thank you. Jesus came and worked salvation. Jesus came and worked salvation. And that's what we're going to see. We're going to see in this passage that Jesus has come and worked salvation, that Jesus is getting himself dressed and saying, I'm going to work salvation for the church. While the world sees the church as outdated and authoritarian and institution and bigoted and repressive, and that religion is the root of the problem, 
Jesus sees his church as the hope of the world. Amen? Jesus is not simply theologically committed to his church and his people as an interesting project. He's all in. He's Andy and Vic all in. In fact, he's more all in than Andy and Vic. He's definitely more in than me, and he's more all in than you. This is how he looks over Jerusalem in Matthew 23, verse 37. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, he weeps over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers its chicks under the wings, but you're not willing. You just weren't there. I longed to gather, but you've just got other things to do. You just weren't willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. That is what we face, people. Not just God first. What's happening? There are big churches in the nation, but what's happened is it's just Christians huddling together for bodily warmth. You get big churches, and what happens is everybody thinks, well, let's go to the big church. And I'd love to be a big church, so get me wrong. Let's go to the big church and we can pretend that the, the, that the gospel's winning, that the kingdom's winning, that the land is not desolate. We think, we'll just go to the big church and we'll just think, isn't it amazing? But what happens is church building after church building after church building in this town, offices and cafes and other things. Because we just want to huddle together because we just don't want to face it. Was looking and said, "There's no one. There's no one." Looks at Israel and says, "There's no one." So, 61 verse 10, the Messiah in Isaiah is getting dressed. He's getting dressed. It says, "It says, I will delight in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God." Obviously, that's the Son talking about his Father. He has dressed me with garments of salvation, and a robe of righteousness. He wraps me. As a groom wears a priestly crown and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. He's getting dressed. Jesus is getting dressed to get to do some. The first thing he got to get dressed is he took on flesh. Took on flesh. He said, I'm going to clothe myself in humanity. I'm going to take on flesh. I'm going to take personal responsibility for this. I'm going to become like them. I'm going to come from heaven and I'm going to get myself dressed to get something done. I'm going to be dressed with garments of salvation. It's salvation is found in his flesh. As his flesh is crucified, salvation comes. Salvation in his flesh. In a robe of righteousness, he wraps me. He's done nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with Jesus. There's no brokenness with Jesus. There's no desolation with Jesus. There's no forsaken, abandoned with Jesus. He gets himself ready for the wedding as a groom wears a priestly crown. The idea of priests is interesting. We don't believe in priests per se. How many priests are in here? All of us. But what a priest does is a priest in Jewish thinking and often in Catholic thinking or whatever is one that goes to God and represents the people to God and then represents God to the people. That's what Jesus is doing. He's coming, a priestly crown, a king, and he says, right, I'm going to get it done. How's he going to get it done? I love this quote from Alec Motier in his commentary of crowns and robes. 
We think of the humiliation and pain of the crown of thorns. But to Jesus, the Lord Jesus, it was a, priest, a bridegroom's priestly headdress. We picture the bedraggled and blood-stained robe that he wore at Calvary that was stripped from his body. But to him it was a wedding garment. His cross. The cross is his and our true wedding day. He's coming to get it done. Coming to get it done. Stripped and naked and beaten. He's coming to get it done. Clothed in flesh that flesh could be beaten. Crowned with glory so that he could be crowned with shame. You can almost hear the wedding vows. It's almost like this is what he says to us. Jesus says this to you. No longer will it be said of you forsaken. If you feel forsaken, he says, no longer. Nor said of you, your land desolate. I heard somebody text somebody in the church with an encouraging message. But the, part of, the first part of the message, he said, you know, thank you for what you'd preach, not to me, it was someone else. Thank you, it's to Sophie, actually. Thank you for what you'd preach, Sophie. I have felt barren. Spiritually, I've felt barren. We feel it, guys. No, no, no. Instead. Instead, you'll be called, my pleasure or my delight is in her. And you're land married. Where's God's delight? In us. I struggle with that. I think, how on earth could that be true? How on earth could that be true? How could God delight in me? I'm a really very bad excuse for what I do. And you say, no, no, don't be so pathetic and insecure. Let's have a bit of triumphalism. But the reality is, I look at myself and think, you know, how can he delight in me? And you probably look and think, well, you know, we've nearly got ten. How can God be delighted about that? Surely he delights in that huge church plant down the road where there's 200 already and they've only seemed to have just blinked. How can he delight in me? But he does. My pleasure is in her. And your land is fruitful, married. So what that verses say about, you know, about the fruitfulness of the springing up and life springing up. For the Lord's pleasure is in you and your land is married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so the son will marry you. Oof, you're not going to be alone. The gap's going to be closed. He's going to be with you. As a groom delights over a bride... Read it. So your God will delight in you, Jerusalem. Come on, he's doing it, he's doing it. He's saying, I'm going to invite you in. I'm going to invite you into the big huddle of the love of God. I'm going to invite you in. I'm going to get you into the ocean current of love of God that I've always flown in. That what's true for me is your it's true for me is going to be true for you. My, my wife, desolate and deserted, no longer forsaken. You're going to feel loved. No longer desolate, you're going to feel fruitful. I say this so often, on the cross declares all that I am I give to you. As the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so God rejoices over you. Just as, Je just as the Father said over Jesus, this is my beloved Son in whom I delight, Jesus says over us, this is my beloved in whom I delight. You know, the thing is, in our individualistic culture, and we'll talk about this some, some, sometime in September, in our individualistic culture, we sometimes think that that is personal. When I've said you, you've probably heard it as personal. You know, sometimes preachers might say, if you're the only person in the world, Jesus would have died for you. 
And we kind of like that with Western personal. Well, yeah, of course he would, because it's about me, isn't it? The world is about me, and of course he would die for me, because I'm, I'm very worth dying for. But actually, that you is us. It's us. It's us as a community. It's us as the bride, the togetherness. Jesus' delight is not in you, in your small corner, in your individual religion. It's in us as his community. Jesus' love is set upon the gathered community that is his bride. Tim Chester says this, To become a Christian is to be part of the people, the bride that Jesus has died for. It's not that you belong to God and then make the decision whether or not to join a local church. Being united to Jesus, married to Jesus, means that I am in Christ and with those who are also in him. This is my identity. This is our identity. It means being a Christian is a community reality. You've got to be in it. The delight of the Lord is in us together. It's not that he's not in you on your own, but he's in, in us together. And then what does he do? He says, for Zion's sake, the church's sake, I'm not going to be quiet. For Jerusalem's sake, I'm not going to be still. Jesus is going to speak and he's going to do something because he loves the church. He's going to constantly call out to his father, God, do something. Bless, bless the church. Bless my bride. He's constantly active and busy. He's not still. He's constantly active and busy. Passionate for the work of his church. C.H. Spurgeon, the old preacher uh, from uh, over 100 years ago, says Jesus' soul, Jesus' heartbeat is set upon the perfection of his church. There's never a moment when the heart of Christ ceases to beat high for salvation of his redeemed. He carries on this work with, say it. Right, say it with quenchless zeal now. He carries on this work with a quenchless zeal, never stopping his divine intercession, never withholding his hands from wielding all his power and pouring out all his overflowing love to that end. Jesus is at it. He's not silent. He's not still. He's got a glorious goal in mind for his church. Let's read it. For Jerusalem's sake, I'll not be still. Jesus is working until. Say until. Until. That means it's going to happen in the future. Until her righteousness. This is the church. The righteousness shines out like the brightness of the dawn. Her salvation like a flaming torch. Nations will see your righteousness and all kings your beauty. You'll be a glorious crown in the Lord's hand, a royal crown in the grip of your God. God's going to do something. He's going to do something. He's going to do it until our righteousness shines out like the dawn. Her salvation like a blazing torch. I, I don't know if, you've, if, you, if you like to go out in the... In, in the dark, I, I mean, that sounds random, doesn't it? But do you know what I mean? If, you've, if, you, if you like to go outside where it's really dark, there is something incredibly uh, powerful about having your lights off and seeing the kind of starlights. But when you put a light on, suddenly that drives all the darkness out. And, and, and Jesus said I, to, to the church, I want you to shine like a blazing torch. This is a dark world and he's saying to you, church, individuals, I want you to shine like a blazing torch. It says a smouldering wick he does not snuff out. Even if you feel like a smouldering wick, the darkness cannot put you out. 
Lack of fuel, lack of passion, lack of oxygen, lack of a spirit can put the wick out. But the darkness cannot put the, the flaming torch out. We cannot put the smouldering wick out. One life changed by the power of the gospel very, burns very bright. One life dealing with sickness burns very bright in the workplace. One life that lives differently burns, burns very bright. It's like a, a, a blazing torch. We know this passage, don't we? Jesus says, you are the light of the world. I sit on a hill that cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under the bowl. Instead, they put it on the stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. That's part of what we're to do. God first, at the moment, it feels like we're a little, uh, uh, we might be a match. We might be a decent candle. You know, we might be feeling, well, we're getting close to being a blazing torch. That'd be handy, wouldn't it? We'd love to be a huge beacon bonfire. You know, Lord of the Rings, light the beacons, light the beacons. But it's still dark. It's still dark. But something's coming. Something is coming, and we need to believe that. It says, until the church shines out like the brightness of the dawn. From space, you can see the dawn race across the earth. It's unstoppable. If you're in a plane, you can't outrun the dawn. You know, you, you can see it, can't you? you're flying and you can think, it's coming, it's coming. You can see the dawn, the dawn's chasing after the plane. You can't, you can't run away from it. it it's, something, it's something significant. It's something that everybody notices when it's light. You know, it's like four o'clock, it's light at four o'clock. You, you, who's waking up early? Yeah, yeah, I was like, whoa, the dawn is waking me. You know, I might want to sleep to when I want to sleep, but the dawn is waking me. Then in the winter, it's the other way, it's darkness. Like, oh, you know, you can't get up. The dawn is like a bright line that sweeps across the nations. All nations will see your righteousness. All kings your glory. The darkness may seem fearful, but there's inevitability about the dawn. We have to believe in the coming dawn. We have to believe that God, that the church is not on an inevitable downward decline to nothing, that actually God's going to make the church like the dawn. He's going to make the church something significant. Thanks, Andy. You know, we don't like to use the word revival because it feels hyped. But the reality is that this is what it means. It means that God's going to do something in his church that's going to change it. It is not inevitable that, w- that as, as, as societies get more progressive, more liberal, that the church gets smaller and dies. That might feel like the narrative in the culture, but it's not the narrative in the book. It's not the word from the Messiah in Isaiah. There is going to come a day when... Everybody's going to see the glory of the church. When Jesus is going to come and burst through the heavens with a trumpet blast and he's going to say, look at my church. He's going to take it and hold it up like a royal crown. He's going to say, look at this beautiful church. And it's not going to be like, please, the, ki- the, you know, the emperor's new clothes. Really? The church is pathetic. You know, it's, it's really naked and dis- you know, desolate and forgotten. No, it's going to be clothed in righteousness. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be massive. It's going to throw the whole earth over Thank you. In that day, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, God's church will be by the praise of the whole earth. How do we respond? How do we respond? Isaiah, the Messiah in Isaiah, tells us what we've got to do. 
I think we've got to understand that Jesus burns with energy and passion for his church, that Jesus is not in heaven weeping and saying, oh, what's happening to the It's all gone terribly wrong. You know, I thought it was going to be easy. No, I do that. <laughs> he doesn't do that. You know, we are like, oh, I'll be a little bit, you know, I'll be involved, you know, it's kind of something I do along with the sporting leads, you know, or whatever. It's something I do, I've got various passions that I'm interested in, but, you know, this is something I'm passionate about. But kind of, you know, let's get it, keep it in. He's absolutely, Jesus is absolutely one-eyed with this passion. He's one-eyed with this passion to see his church bring his kingdom. So what does he expect you to do? You who call on the Lord, hands up if that's you. I'm not looking. I'm assuming that we all pray at some point. <laughs> you who call on the Lord. He give, and give him no rest. He's already working, so he's going to give him no rest. Until he establishes the church and makes her the praise of the, all the earth. Something has got to get hold of us people. Not just God first, but Christians. Something's got to get hold of us. You might think, oh, this guy's mad. He's gone on for too long. He's far too energized. Can I just have my dose of church and go? No, because this is the thing that's happening in the earth. We, millennials want to live for something that really matters. But the challenge is that we don't give our time to it. It's this kind of, mm, I want to live for something that really makes a difference in the earth, but I'm too busy. So I feel frustrated. Just, we've got to choose. What are we going to go for? Are we going to go to other, are we going to go for this great thing? C.H. Spurgeon, we'll land with him. I don't know what the response is today apart from, come on, let's be passionate. C.H. Spurgeon, I would have loved to hear that guy preach. I mean, he smoked cigars, he was slightly overweight, you know, <laughs> he was a little bit bearded, you know, I, I don't know if he drank, you know, the, the, the latest homebrew, you know, he probably, I don't think he had tattoos, but he would have done today, you know, he'd have thought, whoa, hang on a minute, he says this, Mark well, listen up, beloved, that's us, how Christ would have his people to be in tune with himself he will he will have no rest till salvation's work is done and he would have us take no rest but be stirred with passionate desire and fired with holy zeal for the accomplishment of the divine plan of grace where's your energy going where's my energy going what do I worry about? What do I stress about? Please don't ask my wife at the end. I'm preaching this to myself. I'm preaching it to you. He'd have us be concerned with what he's concerned with. He'd have us delight in what he delights in. He'd have us working for salvation that he's working for. Lord Jesus, we pray. I pray for my diary. Pray, put me to work in what you've got me to put to work in. Not in the things that I think make a church, but have me together in community, believing you. Believing you. Even if my little torch feels like it's not really having very much effect on the darkness, we're going to hold up our torches together. But we believe in the coming dawn. We say, let your kingdom come. 
let your will be done on earth as it in heaven. Let your church arise and let our enemies be scattered. In Jesus' name. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.